Certainly it's a blessing to be able to be together tonight, isn't it? To give thought to the opportunity alone to gather, to assemble in a place in which there are no official authorities here waiting to arrest or waiting to cause at least particular problems. And yet we can meet in the quietness and the peacefulness of an hour such as this one. I hope you'll be turning to Acts chapter 2, and we, for the next few moments tonight, will at least approach that chapter with a little bit of an unusual circumstance concerning what might well often be the case. We're going to look at that sermon, and we're going to do so from the perspective of paying attention. In fact, I chose that as a part of the title of the lesson tonight. You'll notice on this next particular slide, we will carefully take a look at some introductory thoughts that go like this. Haven't we often been a bit impressed, almost bewildered at times, when we give thought to the kind of faith that we see among the peoples of the New Testament? In regard to so many particular examples, we see in them a faith that might well be described as fearless. That is to say, in the face of difficulty and perhaps even great difficulty, in the perhaps of loss of nearly everything materially, in the loss of their life they still displayed a faith that might well be called fearless. And tonight, I thought we might revisit that lesson, that sermon delivered in Acts chapter 2, and at least cast a spotlight on one of the bases that allowed them to have that kind of a faith. By the same consideration, that would also suggest that you and I, borrowing that same approach, could also, when those difficult times were to arise, that we too could exemplify and we could demonstrate that kind of faith. You may notice about the middle and bottom part of that slide. It's thus my hope that we can look at this one particular aspect and use it to motivate ourselves in that same exact way. So as we turn the slide over to the next one, we'll begin our consideration like this. If we're going to discuss a fearless faith, what about the word fear? At least as it's employed biblically, and what might thus be one of the comments we can make about it, that would prompt us to give consideration to some of the features of that great lesson preached on that Acts chapter 2 day. First of all, the word occurs a lot in the Bible. Approximately 400 times in the King James Version of the Bible, and of that number, 82 of them in the New Testament. Now, I think we'd all be quick to say we might be more interested in the underlying Hebrew or Greek words and how many of them are translated that way? Well, first, the number is still sufficiently large that we will simply make observation of the commonality of the occurrence of this particular theme and word. Could I begin in 1 Peter 1.17 by pointing out that all of those that would live pleasing to God are commanded to live exactly in, a, in an attitude of what would be described as fear in these ways. In fact, as you look at that particular verse, I think the closing part of it is especially strong. Allow me to read that if I might. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 17. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Now, we would all agree that it would be our desire to be characterized like those first in that verse, that we would be those that would be recommended or at least commended by God, and yet the text goes on to say that we thus should live the days of our sojourning here 
in fear. I might add to that two more passages which we will note in passing, one of which is we're told expressly not to ultimately fear those that can kill the body, but rather to fear those, namely the one, that can kill both body and soul in hell. That's Matthew 10, 28. And thus again, we are told there that our sojourn should be characterized in fear. If I bring you then to the middle of that slide, isn't it an impressive thing to notice how that perfect love is described as that which casts out fear in 1 John 4, verse 18? And aren't we reminded in that passage that a healthy respect and fear for God is needful, but that ultimately our love for Him and what He has done and is doing and shall do for us will overwhelm the reality of a kind of fear that makes us shall we say, look upon Him in a way that we ought not. The amazing thing about all of that leads us to note those observations I invited you to consider at the bottom of that slide. The practical value of fear is something that so often is highlighted and one could develop many lessons based on at least certain features of it. What I will simply do tonight is, perhaps with an idea of developing another one, I've asked you to note this as you close that slide. The first century Christians, and please keep in mind that as you and I come to the book of Acts, it's not as if we are looking decades later. Many of these events are in the very early days of the church, and yet even then, those disciples illustrated and demonstrated a conviction, a resolve, a devotion, a fearlessness in light of their faith. How did it develop so quickly? Again, it's not as if they had heard sermons for 50 years. The church wasn't that old. It's not as if they had heard and overwhelmingly considered various and sundry examples. The church was that new. And yet, as you and I look at this chapter, this is the birthday of the church, day one. There had been no Christians prior in the ultimate sense to this. As I turn the slide to the next one, let's develop some of those this way first. Let's highlight several features of the sermon that's recorded for us. And then we will use that to extract a few lessons that can be a benefit to us. First of all, Acts chapter 2 is an exceedingly vital chapter in the, in the Word of God. I believe we would go so far as to say that all the chapters are important, of course. But there's something fundamentally basic about this one. For after all, there was no church of the Lord prior to this chapter, and yet from this chapter onward, the church is the reigning theme of the New Testament. The nature of that organization that the Lord Jesus promised to build, the reality of it that came to pass, and the hopeful blessing it allows to all of those that are faithful members of it. This chapter is that critical. Some have described it as the hub of the Bible. The points that I would call to your attention begin like this. As you and I know, this is but a few weeks after the crucifixion of Jesus. A few weeks. The Lord had died at the Passover season that year, having been crucified, and in the Pentecost season, which was numbered 50 days, about a month and a half or a little less, from the actual occurrence of the Sabbath of that Passover celebration, these events took place. And so on the slide. 
could I call your attention to this? The Israelites, at least a large number of these Jewish individuals, were assembled exactly in accordance to what the Old Testament had asserted ought to be the case. In Leviticus 23, as well as Exodus 23, God gave commandment that three feasts, three festivals in the season, that they were to celebrate by assembling at the place where God had placed His name. That meant that at those seasons we would regard as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that particular season of the Pentecost, and that season of the Feast of Ingathering, God expected them to assemble at that place. As they came together here, you began to notice a few particulars are quickly revealed to us. First of all, might I call your attention to verses 9 through 11. A large group of people had come. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, dwellers in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya about Cyrene, strangers of Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretes, Arabians, people from so many locales, some of them rather distant from Jerusalem, had come together just as the Old Testament had described. First of all, aren't we a bit impressed that there were rather devout Jews then living in a lot of differing places? And they still felt the urgency and the need to come as instructed and arrive at a place like this and celebrate that Pentecost exactly as God had indicated. But with that all in mind, verse number 14, in a very solemn way, calls their attention to this. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be it known unto you, and hearken to my words. Peter gathers their attention. I've asked you to notice on that slide, we are not told how many people would have been assembled in Jerusalem at this time. In fact, there's been a fair discussion about that. All I'll do is at least quote what Josephus has to say about it. I understand he's not an inspired writer. But surely from a historical standpoint, what he would have had to say about the size of the gathering should carry some weight. May I quote, Josephus said, A great many tens, thousands of men come together at the Pentecost festival, at the Pentecost observance, and so we would expect that hundreds of thousands of people would have been in that locale, having come there for the understanding connected to the Pentecost celebration. As verse number 14 had immediately pointed out, Peter and the eleven stood up to proclaim the great message that they had been equipped to preach, and they spoke with boldness. Would you be impressed at how bold they spoke? After all, the very one who was the center of the sermon they preached had been nailed to a cross but a few weeks earlier. How quick would you and I have been to stand up and preach with boldness the very one who they put to death a little over seven weeks earlier? It would have caused one to think twice. Should I compromise a bit on the boldness and maybe skirt around the thoroughness and the urgency of the moment? But Peter and the others didn't. They preached with directness, with boldness, with an appeal to the God of heaven. And so as you close that slide, notice verse number 22. Ye men of Israel, 
Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Peter rather boldly said, What I'm saying to you, you know it well. You saw him. You witnessed his miracles. You appreciated that which was the nature of that which he did. Verse 23, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken. You took him, and you killed him, despite the fact that he was sent by God. Now, if you would, notice again the characteristic sense of courage in what they preached and how they did it. As I transition to the next slide, though, notice how that continues to invite other following aspects in that same message. Verse 24, please. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that He should be holden of it. You and I noted in a sermon about two weeks ago, the fact surrounding the thought of a resurrection. How often have you seen one? You and I often go to funeral homes, and we understand what transpires. That body has either been cremated or it's going to be buried, but we do not expect to see that person in the flesh again. Here Peter stood up as well as those other apostles that day and preached the fact of, though he was delivered and though you killed him, God raised him up. And he used these words, it was not possible that he should be holden in that grave. This Jesus was resurrected. I know it, you people know it, Peter said. In light of a statement as strong and as bold as that, what about the next observance? He spoke about the coronation of the Christ. You and I know what it means to coronate. A person who then takes the place in, in throneship over a kingdom, they are coronated. You and I remember just a few months ago, King Charles was coronated as the King of England. Now, Jesus, of course, rests a lot higher in kingship than that. But the point is, here was an official and solemn occasion in which a crown was placed on Charles's head, an affirmation of those that were then to be followers of him was made, and it was a very stirring occasion for the peoples of that land. For you and me, we notice Jesus was in acclaim in this chapter as the king over the kingdom. So much so that I made just two final statements. When Peter arrived at the end of that message, verse number 36 makes this observation. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. He drew a conclusion. Did you note the word therefore? In light of that which we've seen, Jesus was crucified, Jesus was buried, Jesus was resurrected, Jesus was thus raised, and in so doing, he was coronated, finally, as the very one ruling over the kingdom, of, that is, the kingdom of God. In light of these things, let all of you know without doubt that God hath made that same Jesus that you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the anointed one of God who is the very one revealing and bringing the good things of God to the human family. As you come to verse number 41, 
you notice that there were some among that number that gladly received that message. Please appreciate the word gladly. It's not as if their arms had to be twisted to obey the gospel. They had just asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were urgently hanging on every word of Peter. What is it then that we must do in order for us to be forgiven of this travesty we've committed in putting the Son of God to death? Peter, without hesitation, said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That sin you've committed could be forgiven, washed away, remitted, if you will but obey that gospel in the matter of repentance and baptism. You notice in verse number 41, approximately 3,000 obeyed the gospel at that time. 3,000. One of the first comments might then be, in light of the hundreds of thousands present, the number 3,000 isn't overly large. A fairly small percentage of, the, of those present actually obeyed the gospel in faith that day. But oh, what a nucleus that 3,000 were. The kind of movement you and I see in light of the early church, a people described with a fearless faith. For after all, as you come two chapters later to Acts chapter 4, we already find the number had exploded to over 4,000. A thousand people had obeyed the gospel during the time from chapter 2 on to chapter 4. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that wonderful? As you close that particular slide with me, though, verse number 47 ends that chapter by saying, The Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. You and I have thought then somewhat briefly about the particulars of the message. Why don't we develop this aspect of it? What is one reason as to why those individuals that were those early Christians could have this faith that could be described as fearless? Let me offer one thought. They were people who paid attention. That is, again, to say, they were people who paid careful attention. Why might we say that? And how does that seem to be such a careful and strong element to this entire idea? Well, look at what I developed with you on that slide. If you and I wish to be those that counted exactly, Jesus had died 52 days earlier than the events detailed in this chapter. 52 days. Surely, in light of 52 days, we know that's not that long Amazing, isn't it, then, that as those events transpired here, as this crowd was assembled, they were thus still interested in the things of God because, again, it was God that commanded the gathering at the Pentecost season. And yet, Peter and the others used this occasion not to highlight the law of Moses. The law of Moses had been nailed to the cross. They highlighted this new Christianity this set of ideas that was to engulf the world and was to be the universal way that God would draw all to come unto Him. Because of all of that, I say it this way near the middle of that slide that's now before you. There was a commitment, a fearlessness that was characteristic of these early saints. And one of the things that prompted it is the careful attention that had been paid on their behalf as well as Peter and the others who preached to the very nature of what was the revelation of God. Why might we say it that way? 
First of all, note this. Early on, do you remember with me? In verse number 13, there was an accusation made. These men are full of new wine. The Holy Spirit had come upon those apostles, baptizing them in that Holy Spirit and equipping them to speak in languages they had never learned, to speak in tongues as the King James would read it. You and I realize how unusual that would be. What if someone from, from one of the hollers in Jackson County started speaking Russian? And you knew they'd never studied Russian, learned Russian, had anything to do with Russian. Or what if someone from a nearby area here could suddenly speak Polish or the Philippine language or one of the far dialects of New Zealand? That would capture our attention, wouldn't it? We'd immediately recognize something's going on here. Well, there were those on that occasion who made a mockery and said, Well, these guys are drunk. Peter rather quickly made an observation. Could I invite you to notice as I read in verse number 15? These are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. It wasn't the time of day to recognize someone inebriated that way. It's still early. They're not drunken. But then in the next verse, we have an initial observation that you and I might make. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And suddenly, Peter, as well as those others who were preaching on that momentous day, called attention back to a prophecy delivered well over 800 years earlier in the little book of Joel. Joel, in verses 28 to 32 of Joel chapter 2, made a prophecy about the thoroughness and the events which were then taking place on that day of Pentecost. It had been the case that Joel looked down the stream of time over eight centuries and spoke about events that was going to transpire then. As he did that, these precious folks on the day of Pentecost some of them heard with intrigue, and some of them heard with interest. And they recognized, remember, Jews ought to have been students of the Old Testament. They understood about the prophecy of Joel. They had heard it in the synagogues as they had been preached on various occasions. And suddenly, the facts came together. And as they paid attention to what Joel had spoke about, understanding it is that which had been revealed, the timetable came to pass exactly as asserted, and they began to have a degree of faith in the events of that Pentecost day. One of the first thoughts you and I might notice then, it wasn't simply based on the very words only and the events that merely were indicative of the days of Peter. This stretched back hundreds of years, and they understood the power of prophecy. The human family were not able to pro prophesy with particularness that which occurs in the future especially hundreds and hundreds of years. And yet the Bible does it many times. There are hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that spoke about the life, the times, the events, the particulars, and often delivered it in minute detail, and these on Pentecost understood that. Look at the next observation. Not only were there scriptures then that were quoted in light of the matters of the day, what about those scriptures that connected to David? Pause long enough to note this with me, please. 
David was certainly a very highly considered figure in Jewish history. He was the second king of Israel, but he was the prototypical one to whom they looked. He was powerful, and he, in fact, greatly unified many things in light of foreign enemies with the kingdom of Israel. And yet, David had lived a thousand years before this day of Pentecost. A thousand years. What if you and I give thought to what were things on this earth like in the year 1023? A thousand years ago. Don't you know how many things were different? Folks back then seeing an airplane flying through would no doubt have run for cover. They would have been beside themselves in fear, thinking, what is that? To think about something you could hold in your hand and talk to somebody halfway around the world or more. They would not only have been amazed, they would have probably thought you and I were dealing witchcraft or something. A thousand years has brought a lot of changes. And yet, as Peter stood up that day, he quoted from a book that detailed events a thousand years earlier... And as they paid attention to it, they were led to understand the thoroughness of that which had been prophesied and that to which it pointed. I call your attention to Acts 2 verse 25 in this very chapter. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. One of the convicting things then that Peter did that day, he quoted from Psalm 16. had been written a thousand years earlier, and he quoted from Psalm 16. That convicted many that were there that day as they paid attention to what Peter said and connected the dots, if you please, from the time of that prophecy to its fulfillment. You and I appreciate it was speaking about the resurrection of the Christ. David hadn't been resurrected, but Jesus had. And David spoke about that reality and foretold it. But that isn't all. Look at what's on this slide. Not only was there a reference to David concerning the nature of the resurrection of which he spoke, there was something about the character of the promise that God revealed to David. That promise is found in 2 Samuel 7. That had been written again well over a thousand years earlier. That was in the life and times, you see, of those that were before David. You might remember at that time the first king, I'm sorry, in terms of 2 Samuel 7, you appreciate with me David was currently the one on the ruling throne of Israel. And yet in that time, you see about the nature of that which God foretold through him that there would be a descendant of His that would be regarded in the place of that Messiah, the one that was to come. Finally, could I invite you to note verse 30? Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. That takes us back to Psalm 16 again. The nature of the resurrection the appreciation of the Lord's kingdom, the understanding that went with it, there was a fine detail. And as those paid attention to that, they developed and acquired a faith that was understood to be a fearless one. 
For they understood it wasn't founded upon the things of men. It wasn't founded on what men might assert. It was anchored in the truth that God had revealed. And there was no compromise of it. The last observation was the ascension spoken of in Acts 2.34. In that verse we notice David is not ascended into the heavens. But he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. He quoted from the 110th Psalm this time, drawing attention to those precious ears that day, the nature that those prophecies in detail pointed to the events of which they had witnessed with the death of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the founding of the church on that particular day, and the splendor that went with all of it. To pay attention... I would suggest these kind of ideas are quite an encouragement to you and me. How easy can it be to read through a passage, maybe not give that much attention to the words, the connections, the particulars that are therein described. We might gain some sense of what's there. But you notice Peter developed a lesson, preached it that day, that was anchored in the reality of them paying close attention to the, what those prophecies had said and to their fulfillment and to what it meant for them. And that should be the Word of God and its significance for you and for me as well. Again, those men weren't drunken, Acts 2.15. And furthermore, Jesus had been testified by the reality of the miracles that He had performed and they had seen it. It's certainly fair to say Faith is a matter that can generate such strength in you and me. We too, with a faith that's anchored in the declarations of this book, we too can have very much a fearless faith. Science won't be able to dissuade it. The claims of men won't be able to shatter it. The assertions of others and the claims they may make will not be able to shake. Our faith, you see, can be as unshakable as theirs was because it's anchored on the same thing that theirs was. Four quick observations allow me to make four very brief points and then the lesson will be yours. When we talk about this fearless faith, first of all, a faith that's pleasing unto God, it will be a faith that is based upon the evidence which God has presented to us. Faith is not blind. I know you as well as I have heard this phrase of blind faith. The Bible does not teach that that's the kind of faith God expects you and I to have. He presents to us the evidence of His being, the nature of His dealings with the human family, and He's provided evidence for the reality of all of that. In Romans 1 verse 20, the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Men have no excuse for not being believers in God. No excuse for thus being those that would fall into a category of having no faith, or at least little faith. Not only that, you'll notice in Acts 22 verse 15, Jesus, in fact, on that road to Damascus, used some powerful words to Paul that he would testify what he had heard and what he had seen. Paul wasn't just going to be making up the things he preached. The second point might be this one. 
just as surely as the case was in that Acts chapter 2 event, they were expected to pay careful attention to not only those prophecies and what had been said, but the implications of them. Today, God expects us to be those who use reasoning and logic as we recognize that which God has revealed to us. Come and let us reason together, saith the Lord, to borrow the words of Isaiah 1 verse 18. On that particular slide, I've invited you to notice as well that that word reason, as it's used in the Bible, is really a word that's more often than not found in a lawsuit circumstance. When someone is called to appear before a magistrate or a judge, and there are opposing cases, evidence is presented, and that evidence leads to either a conviction or an acquittal. But it's not based on hearsay, and it's not based on what I think. It was to be based on evidence. And that's the very circumstance that is the highlight of those passages, at least. In the third place, the kind of appeal that's made then in Acts chapter 2 led those people to pay careful attention to what Peter had brought to their observation. And may I say that that idea reminds us to pay a careful attention to it as well. Every word of God is tried. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. In Romans 4, verse 3, what saith the Scripture? That kind of question is fundamental. And the fourth and final point is this one. This kind of appeal is what can lead to a faith that's fearless. Because it's not based upon my abilities. It's not based upon that which is of me or of you, but it's based on what God has revealed. And in Him, we move and live and have our very being, Acts 17, 25 and through, through 28. Surely then all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The lesson text that I selected for this lesson then was the application of this in the words of 2 Timothy 1, verse number 12. Paul there could say, I know whom I have believed. I know it. I know whom I believed, and am persuaded he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. That's why their faith could be fearless. They knew who they believed in. And they understood in part that because they'd paid careful attention to the features of what God had revealed, and they allowed that to emanate to the kind of life they then lived in faith. As we finish this lesson tonight, then on this one final slide, let's conclude our lesson like this. Fear of God, as we began the lesson with tonight, is needful. But if you and I are to have a fearless faith, it will have to be anchored in part on paying attention to the things which God has revealed so that our faith doesn't stand in the wisdom of men, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 5, but it stands in the nature of what God has shown us, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5. Tonight, if there's someone in this assembly, and you would desire to become a Christian, won't you believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His great name, and be buried in baptism? We'd be honored to be of assistance and helpfulness tonight. If you have known the way of Christianity, and maybe for a while your faith was fearless, 
But over the course of time, it has become weak. It has become not that which Christ would want it to be. You could come back to your first love tonight. You could again appreciate a faith that is strong and fortified and a faith that is very much characterized by so many of these events we've studied about tonight. If we could help you in any of these ways, we would encourage and invite you to come and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.